You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.22, Never to Return, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and if you follow me on Twitter, then you've probably seen that I have recently been embroiled in controversy and attacked from all sides for my courageous decision to pronounce a certain character's name Sirocco instead of Sirocco. Well, I've listened, and I've heard you, and after a long period of soul-searching, I've decided that the way forward for all of us is to adopt a compromise solution that will satisfy everyone. So from now on, I will only refer to the aforementioned character as Jupiter Headbandio. Now, no one will ever have anything to complain about again. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta, and... You know, Tom went on so long that I have no response to that. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 434 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Rayanne K., Huevos Lee, and Nicholas W. This podcast would not be possible without your support. And remember, dear listeners, that links to all of the different ways to support us and keep us ad-free are listed together on our website at gundampodcast.com support. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 24, Sibling Love Blooms in the Southern Seas, or Nankaini Saku Kyodai Ai. For research this week, Nina will continue to talk about childhood as a concept and how childhood developed over time in the Japanese context. But first, let's go on a tour of the Radio Free Shangri-La offices and poke our heads into the writer's room. We take you now, live, to a meeting of the Radio Free Shangri-La Anarcho-Fictionalist Multimedia Cooperative, already in progress. Listen in as the writer-performers struggle to outline the upcoming twists and turns of their numerous serialized radio dramas. Nathan? We can hear you. All seems calm at the moment, but events are about to take a momentous turn. Nathan, we've asked you before to stop narrating our lives. Yeah, it makes it very difficult to keep straight which bits are real and which are fiction. Oh, is that going to be your excuse for why you ad-libbed that line about Hector not testing well amongst the listeners? Way to break the fourth wall, big sister. But if we break any of the walls, then the fumes from Sludge Lake will get into the studio, and we'll start hallucinating. First of all, Hector doesn't test well. With anybody. And second of all... Hey, knock it off, you two. Can we please just talk about the script for the next Strobe Flanagan episode? The only thing we have so far is that in this episode, Strobe and companions descend into the gravity well 
of the League of Free Planets capital in order to save General Mackham Harm from the forces of Admiral Evil besieging the planet. This will be an action-packed, hair-raising re-entry episode, so we'll need a lot of wind, laser gun, you know, alarm noises. Can anyone make... Oh my god, I'm in a living nightmare. I was going to say, can anyone make it into the city tomorrow and buy us a sound effects cassette? Fine, I'll just do that myself too. And while we're on the subject, can you please stop leaving the door propped open? I think that's how crickets keep getting into the studio. Right, well, we should really focus this next episode on fleshing out Zabibi. The audience needs to know his tragic backstory, where he came from, why he fights to defend the League of Free Planets, how his little sister wound up in Admiral Evil's clutches. He doesn't have a tragic backstory, he's just a little green squeaky thing for comic relief. I always pictured Zabibi as more of an orange space dog. I pictured tentacles. But you aren't satisfied with that, are you? Mr. James, I get a monologue in every episode, striker! No, you're a real actor, so you should be the star of every show. Meanwhile, I was supposed to have a title role as the lone survivor, and I don't even think we're making that one anymore. Oh, yeah. Whatever happened to doing a western? Seriously, does Zabibi have tentacles or not? I think we should introduce another charismatic but ineffective enemy commander in this episode. We did that last week. And the week before. Honestly, you'd think Admiral Evil's despicable armada of wickedness is nothing but charismatic yet ineffectual officers. Ah, but you see, this one is a deconstruction of that trope. See, she's a take-no-guff bodybuilder and... She carries a boombox on her shoulder wherever she goes. Her mobile suit attacks with powerful sound waves. And she's called Sonny Walkman. Besides every other problem with that idea, you know we'll get sued, right? Oh, please. We've done way worse than that before, and we've never been sued. Oh, hello, Mr. Timson. Bad news, folks. We are being sued. Oh, Shazbat. Let's see. Anbev is suing for defamation after we said they were using salt to cover up the taste of tainted soda syrup. I'm still not clear if that segment really happened. Like, is Detective Stryker a real detective in the real world, or did, did we invent him? And what about that energy drink? Was that- We are also being sued by Alfredo Galbaldi's authentic Granada-style neo-Italian pizzeria for using their likeness without authorization. Uh, The Twanning Street Business Improvement District for implying that their streets are overrun by gangsters with cartoonish stereotypical accents. Man Guy Toys and Hobbies want to cancel their ad spots uh, because they've decided the strobe Flanagan cereals no longer fit their family-friendly image. Here is a class action lawsuit on behalf of all women named Margarita. And the Colony Corporation is suing us for, hmm, uh, unlicensed broadcasting, uh, safety violations, mm, egregious, uh, uh, unjustifiable, mm, high crimes, uh, misdemeanors, uh, ooh, sending all of our love along the wire without a permit, child labor violations, Eh, there's a lot in here. Let's just say that the Colony Corporation is suing us on various causes of action. 
things look pretty bad. I think there's only one thing that we can do at this point. Give up? Pay our debt to society? Throw ourselves on the mercy of the court? No. Flee. The time has come for us to take this show on the road. We outgrew the narrow confines of Shangri-La long ago. We're ready to go out into space, to spread our wings, and learn to fly. At long last, let us take to the stars and leave our troubles, and the jurisdiction of the local courts, far behind us. He's right. Take to the stars! But why would we even need wings in space? Oh, and we do need to go now, because they are coming for us. And now the recap for Sibling Love Blooms on the Southern Seas. Dakar, the Federation capital, has fallen. Explosions outside the city mark where Federation forces are still putting up token resistance. But inside, the city center and the Federation assembly are firmly in the hands of Neozian. The stage is set for Lady Haman's arrival. The earth is all but hers. But 400 kilometers to the south, the Argama and its Gundam team make landfall in an archipelago off the Atlantic coast of Africa. The Spacenoid crew is amazed by the sight of the verdant earth and the endless, gleaming oceans. It's even better than in the photos. The Argama recovers its mobile suits, and with them, the enemy new type pilot, LP Puru. But there's no time to rest or decide how to handle the captive. New orders arrive from their earthbound allies in Karaba. The Argama's mobile suit team is to launch a frontal assault on the Neozeon forces occupying Dakar. Bright can't quite believe that they're being sent into the belly of the beast again, but he doesn't have long to think about it. Because at that moment, a Neozeon commando team in aquatic mobile suits launches a surprise attack on the Argama. Rue and the Zeta drives them off, but it's only a matter of time until they return. And to make matters worse, they are soon engulfed in a storm. So, when a local fishing boat signals that they can show the Argama to safer moorings for a mere 5,000 gilas, Bright accepts the offer. Judo and El run into each other outside Puto's room. Judo's carrying a bag and behaving suspiciously, but when El presses him on his intentions, he says he's just bringing some things for Puto. He can't get into the room they're using for a cell, though, because for once, Bright has taken some actual precautions with the prisoner by locking the door and ordering that Judo not be allowed alone with her. When Puru does see him, she demands to know where he's going. El and Judo assure the girl that Judo isn't really going anywhere, but he doesn't give her the bag, and within moments, it becomes clear that Puru has sensed something about his real intentions, because as soon as he can, he makes an excuse to get away from El, and then he jumps ship, stowing away aboard the fishing vessel that came to guide the Argama. Taman, a boy about Judo's age and one of the fishermen who came out to negotiate, spots Judo, but he doesn't mind helping a fellow kid escape the war. Taman takes Judo back to his home, where they meet his sister, Anu. She's around Lena's age, and the similarities between them are striking. When Anu chides Taman for risking his life and getting entangled in the war all for the sake of money, a melancholic look passes across Judo's face. It's soon clear that Judo left the Argama so that he can go directly to Dakar and free his sister. 
They're discussing how he can get there, but the conversation is interrupted by another fisherman. He's come to get Taman for a special job, one that will pay double. Once Taman is gone, Anyu explains that there's a group of outsiders, soldiers, who have set up a base on the island. They brought mobile suits, too, and trained locals like Taman in how to use them. Back on the Argama, his disappearance has been noticed, at least by El. At first she thinks he's gone to spring Pudu out of the brig, but the younger girl tells El no, Judo has left the ship entirely. Realizing that Pudu can sense Judo's location, El and Ino drag her to the hangar and try to use her like a dowsing rod to point them towards the deserter. Instead, Pudu taunts El, counting on the latter's quick temper. And when El lunges for her, Pudu dodges and leaps into the open cockpit of a core fighter. Moments later, she's racing out through the open hatch, pursued by El and Ino in the other two parts of the double Zeta. Judo goes after Taman. Sneaking into a coastal cave, he discovers the secret staging ground for the Neozeon commando team that attacked the Argama. Now that the AU ship is hunkered down in a supposedly hidden, safe cove, it's a sitting duck for a second attack. They just need the locals to lead the way. Taman agrees. He'll do whatever it takes to get paid. But Judo grabs Taman before he can get into a mobile suit and tries to dissuade him. It's no use. The wiry fisherman drops Judo with a body blow and launches in the new Kapool mobile suit. As Taman races toward the Argama underwater, Judo is found first by Anu and then by Puru in the core fighter. Judo promises to save Taman from the war and he races off with Puru to do just that. Meeting El and Ino on the way back, he forms the double Zeta and sends the other two ahead to warn the Argama about the imminent attack. Underwater, Judo meets the Neozeon squadron in battle, but he's reluctant to fight back knowing that some of these pilots are actually civilians. When one fisherman gets spooked and tries to flee, the Neozeon commander shoots him in the back. That's too much for Judo, and he makes quick work of the remaining mobile suits, all except for Taman in the Kapool. Now furious that the Double Zeta has ruined his chance at a huge payday, and not realizing that Judo is the pilot, Taman tries to continue the fight. But Judo closes the distance. With their radios connected, he begs Taman to escape the war while he still has the chance. I'm not doing this because I like it. Fighting sucks, man. Don't you understand? After seeing all of this? The message gets through. Taman returns to his island, and sends the Kapool off like a bomb to destroy itself, the remaining mobile suits, and all traces of the Neozeon base. The storm breaks at last, and as Taman swims toward Anu waiting on the beach, a rainbow appears above the islands. We're back to Dakar once again, and the depiction of Dakar this time around is very accurate to the real city. Uh, in Zeta, we didn't really get the sort of overhead establishing shot that would allow us to see this, but Dakar in the real world is on a very distinctively shaped peninsula, and here they get it pretty much exactly right. Even the roads are in the right places. There is a section of the Dakar coastline that is uh, underwater here, and maybe that can be chalked up to rising oceans in the Gundam future. 
I love that you took the time to research all of that. Uh, what I noticed immediately is that there is no fighting in the city itself. In the bay, we have a few battleships uh, just outside the city in a sort of like, it looks like a small town, perhaps within commuting distance of the city itself. We see plumes of smoke, we see some activity, but the city itself is calm. The uh, location you've identified there is probably Piccany, which is like a, a commuter city close to, but not inside Dakar. All right, then. We hear mention of this later, but we see very explicitly like Xeon remnants, right? That up until now, Axis has called itself Axis or Axis Xeon. Uh, Neo Xeon is a new term to our characters. Bright is like Neo Xeon. Um, we see Xeon uniforms. We see Zaku. <laughs> <laughs> I think that this was first mentioned in the prior episode during Haman's speech about crushing Earth, but. We were too distracted by the holoscope image of Haman standing on the earth to pay too much attention to these specific words she was using. Also, admittedly, I think I messed us up and used the term Neozeon like months ago. So we've been using it here on the podcast somewhat uh, anachronistically. But now we have officially reached Neozeon and we can use it properly. Uh, and we see what it is. It's a synthesis of the Xeon remnants on Earth with the Axis Xeon exiles returning to the Earth sphere. And we see that there is very little concern about Ayug or Karaba. What they're worried about is Titan's remnants. Hmm. Uh, well, except gather up is rather a, an ambiguous term in that sentence, isn't it? I felt from the context that it was not ambiguous, that it was not about gathering them to your side. It was about dealing with them through fighting or capture or what have you, uh, you thought it was ambiguous? Well, we noticed back in Zeta that the Titans, despite being a group formed to hunt down Xeon remnants, is surprisingly willing to make deals with Axis Xeon. So with that in mind, this line could actually have a couple of different meanings. It could be that they want to identify and wipe out pockets of Titans resistance because they think the Titans are the biggest threat to this invasion of theirs. It could be that they want to gather up the Titans and bring them into their new alliance. Or it could be that this represents a split in the objectives of the different Xeon forces, that Axis Xeon, which has in the past made deals with Titans, is looking to, to do the same thing again and take advantage of whatever strength they have left. And if that's the case, then the Xeon remnants on Earth, who have spent the last few years being hunted down by the Titans, might want to gather them up and get rid of them before Haman arrives and tries to form an alliance with them. That all sounds very complicated. I still think <laughs> my theory is the most likely, but who knows? Karaba is still knocking around someplace, but... Apparently not with much strength either, if they want the Argama to take on Dakar by itself. Yeah, Bright keeps getting these orders that are like, all right, we need you to go into the very heart of the enemy fortification and defeat them using only the power of your gumption. You have several Gundams, that's enough, right? Right, they send him after access directly to the enemy stronghold. Oh, just destroy it with your big gun. Then they send him after Haman's entire fleet, like, oh, attack them alone and destroy them with your big gun. There's no sense of an operation at scale. In the same way that in First Gundam, you know, we had, not admittedly until towards the end, but there was a sense of a, a broader strategy, 
to what was happening and that they were acting in concert with other forces. We've had very little sense of that. Even in Zeta, we did, there wasn't much of it, and there's been even less in Double Zeta. And it seems like the people in charge of AUG are just like, either they don't care about the risks, or they're completely desperate, and they're just crossing their fingers and thinking the new types will save us. The children will save us. <laughs> At the end of last episode, I wondered, once everyone had safely completed re-entry, were we going to be immediately in the midst of battle again? But no, because as it happens, the Axis forces have bigger fish to fry. <laughs> and in the great scheme of things, Dakar is more important than the Argama. <laughs> and so the Argama gets to land pretty peacefully until they come under attack by this smaller uh, local force. When they land, Torres says that their location is about 400 kilometers south of Dakar. And I'm highlighting this line because if you happen to be watching this show with fan subs instead of the official subtitles, the one that I believe to be the most popular fan sub gets this line wrong in a really important way. The fan sub says that it's 400 kilometers southwest of Dakar. I think what they're trying to do here is they're looking at the map that's on the screen and they're trying to make the line match the map, which shows a blinking dot southwest of Dakar. But that's probably where the Argama entered the atmosphere. And then its actual point of landfall is where the trajectory line coming off of that dot intersects with the coast, which is south and kind of southeast of Dakar. So if you follow the coastline down about 400 kilometers, you get to Guinea-Bissau and the Bijagos Islands. And I think that that's where the Argama is landing, in this dense archipelago of about 88 small islands. Like practically every other place on Earth that Gundam visits, Guinea-Bissau has a long history dominated by imperial and colonial powers. I mean, in some of his first lines, Taman makes very clear that no one of the sides that fights over the area where he lives uh, represents his people's interests in any way, or has even attempted to. Uh, they don't have a stake in these conflicts, and his entire life has been other places, other powers, other people with nothing to do with his life fighting over the territory. He rattles off a list, the Federation, Zeon, the Titans, and he might as well be saying France, England, Portugal. And then... And then not only do the wars have nothing to do with them and none of these groups represent their interests, but it actually ruins the livelihood that they have. You know, he says the war has ruined the fishing business. And he's very understanding of the idea that Judo might be trying to run away from the war. This episode, like the Moon Moon arc, which was written by the same person, really doesn't bother trying to cloak its anti-colonial and anti-imperial critique in anything like subtlety. It's right out there in the open. And one way in which this is shown in the episode is the relationship between the Xeon remnant officers who have set up their base here on the island where Taman's people live and the local mercenaries who are fighting for them. There's a clear racial ethnic divide, and this is not inevitable. We've seen that there are black Xeon soldiers. There was at least one on the Endra Corps. And yet here, 
all of the Xi'an soldiers are very clearly descended from white European ancestors. And of course, all of the people actually native to the Bijagos Islands are black. Although, as is common in anime, these characters are depicted with relatively light skin, which is not particularly accurate to the people who actually live in the Bijagos Islands. One of the reasons that I highlight this is that's how colonial domination forces function. Small cores of white officers from the metropole, from the colonial capital, overseeing large numbers of native recruits who are usually relegated to only the lowest ranks in the army. And specifically in the Guinea-Bissau context, the Guinea-Bissau War of Independence, which raged from the early 1960s until 1974, when they were fighting against Portuguese colonial forces, went through a process referred to as Africanization, which is when the Portuguese uh, colonial forces realized that the only way they were going to be able to fight this war was if they started recruiting local soldiers instead of relying on Portuguese troops. Also worth mentioning that in addition to confining local troops to the lowest ranks, they were also frequently given the most dangerous jobs, which we see in the blatant disregard of the uh, Zeon officer for Taman and the fact that the Zeon officer, at least, does not trust the Kapul. says, who would want to pilot an aquatic mobile suit designed by people who had never seen the ocean? Which is a fair concern. There doesn't seem to be anything wrong with it in all the time that we see it working. In fact, quite contrary to that, it seems super cool. Yeah, it's my new favorite. And we'll talk about why some more in a little while. But they clearly make no bones about giving the most dangerous tasks, even to these civilians who are barely trained. And they don't hesitate to execute one of these recruited soldiers uh, as soon as he turns his back on the enemy. Yeah, at one point during the, the battle at the end, Taman is angry because the money they'd been promised amounted to four or five years worth of funds for him and his family and the people who live near them. But would they ever have been paid? I kind of doubt it. Or would it be another suitcase with a bomb in kind of situation? Or just that they would be paid less than they'd been promised. We already see them backpedaling on the, oh, they've promised to pay us double situation mm -hmm. where uh, one of Taman's neighbors rushes in and says, oh, because of the storm, they've offered to pay us double. And then by the time the officers are talking to the locals, it's, oh, how dare you demand double? And the locals don't really have any way to fight back against this. So I find it. Highly suspect that they would have been paid exactly what they were promised. Oh, absolutely. I mean, exploitation is written all over this relationship. And that's in the text of the episode, right? Uh, Taman has the realization where he's like, I thought I was using them, but actually they were using me the whole time. People agreeing to do things for the Xeon forces in exchange for large amounts of money and then having that backfire on them to their own great misfortune is actually a running theme throughout Double Zeta. Going back to uh, Mr. Damar, who I think was the colony corporation official who accepted a bribe from Gotten and then ended up having his mansion destroyed later in the episode, to uh, Cecilia taking the briefcase full of bomb. And now Taman as well. Taman and his sister Anu are also explicitly parallels to Judo and to Lina. 
in the same way that Lena would have been perfectly content for them to have even less money than they already had if it would keep her brother from doing things that were illegal or dangerous, uh, Anu seems to have the same concerns for her own brother. They even have the bit where Judo hears Lena calling to him, but then he wakes up and it, it turns out to have been Anu. This only just occurred to me, but all of Judo's interactions with Taman amount to interactions with a past self, right? Mm. The him just before he got enmeshed in all of this, or just as he was beginning to get enmeshed in all of this. Like, here's what I wish I could have told myself. Here's the advice I wish I had taken. Exactly. I wish someone had stopped me. I wish someone had convinced me not to do these things. And I think it comes up over and over again, you know, when he confronts Taman about, you know, doing whatever in the name of survival, that was absolutely Judo's attitude. And then, you know, in the very beginning of the show, when it was um, him and his friends helping Yazan, it gets someone killed. And Lena even says to him at one point, I hate seeing you like this when you're living just for the sake of money. And Taman, you know, turns it around on Judo. Why do you care what happens to the Argama? But Judo does care now. And partially because some of his good friends are still there, but also because he no longer feels like he can do whatever for money. He feels other motives beyond his own survival. Judo and Taman in this episode both justify their choices by saying that they don't have a choice, that there's nothing else they can do except this thing that they are deciding to do. For Taman, it's getting into the mobile suit and going off to fight for money. And for Judo, it's defending the Argama, continuing to fight. But the point of the episode is to show that Taman, in fact, does have a choice. That saying he doesn't have a choice is actually just a reflection of his own narrow-mindedness. So does the episode, does Gundam Double Zeta also say that about Judo? That Judo, in fact, does have a choice and that he is continually choosing not to take it, not to see the alternatives? I think so. Mostly because of his reaction to Taman destroying the mobile suits and the cave. Because Taman decides we need to go back to how life was before these robots came. The only way to do that is to destroy all of this material, destroy the cave. And when he does it, Puru looks pleased. But Judo looks shocked. Hmm. I think, in a way, Judo cannot conceive of giving up the power that the mobile suit gives him. Hmm. That having become used to having the mobile suit as a tool to achieve his goals, and also for his own defense, right? You know, in theory, the locals could maybe have tried to sell the mobile suits or use them for self-defense. However, given the size of some of the forces they have to deal with, it seems unlikely that that would have been a good plan. <laughs> but I think at this point, Judo can't really conceive of giving up the power that he has. I think you're right about that. And I really like that reading. Although when I saw that scene, I didn't read Judo's expression as shock. I thought he, like Puru, was also admiring what Taman had done. Certainly Judo's expression is more complex. No one has ever accused me of being good at reading facial expressions. That's part of why I podcast. <laughs> To go back to a scene you mentioned earlier where Judo is exhorting Taman to depend only on himself so that others cannot take advantage of him, 
Judo is crying, and Pudu is not quite looking straight at him, but is sort of has her face turned in his direction and looks sad uh, to be hearing him talk like this and, and hearing him cry. But this was the one place in which Judo's position felt somewhat hypocritical to me. How often have we seen Judo only get through a bad situation because of help from his friends? <laughs> his old friends or even some of his new uh, comrades from the Argama? He often sort of shoots from the hip, right? And just starts doing things on his own. But his friends also often offer to help him, plan to help him, jump to his aid when he's gone off half-cocked. Like, I wonder if Judo's line here doesn't mean something somewhat different from what it seems to mean. Because if he is saying you shouldn't rely on other people, then that's deeply hypocritical and doesn't exactly jibe with what Double Zeta seems to be bringing to the table. Double Zeta is really about this uh, big, somewhat fractious, often feuding, found family built around the core of these street kids from Shangri-La and how they rely on each other and the superiority of this organic community they've created versus the artificial hierarchy of the Ayug versus the fascists over in Neo-Zeon, and then whatever the Federation has got going on. The show seems to be pretty positive about these kids. So for Judo to say, you shouldn't rely on anybody, you need to be independent, that doesn't fit. So either he's wrong, or maybe he's thinking in bigger terms. He's thinking in terms of your community needs to be self-reliant so that you aren't depending on these other more powerful outsiders who will just try to use you for their own ends. The line certainly makes the most sense if when he says others, he means institutions. <laughs> he means big organizations. And it fits the rest of the episode. His desire for money represents a attachment to the outside world, to the larger world of the Federation economy, uh, which has all of these powerful domineering outsiders. Whereas if this community of fisher people were self-reliant, able to feed themselves and clothe themselves without recourse to an international economy, then the power of money to seduce him into doing immoral things uh, is much lesser. I don't know that Judo <laughs> is thinking on that scale or in those terms. I don't think Judo is looking back at his life in Shangri-La and thinking like, oh, we should have become homesteaders and learned how to grow our own food and weave our own cloth and sew our own clothes so that we could live independent from society. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't think that's where Judo is coming from. I don't know that he's necessarily thought about it beyond this image in his head that, you know, it, this seemed like a good living and so I took it. I took wages when I said I would never take wages. Because he was always somewhat dependent on someone to pay him, right? But he makes the distinction when he first joins the Argama that there's a difference between being a freelancer like he is and being a wage slave, as he puts it, or at least as the subtitles put it. That is, I think, the crux of his thought process, maintaining that little bit of independence. I think Zeta and Double Zeta both ask, can you seize the weapons of the people who oppress you and then use them for your own personal liberation? And Zeta suggests that the answer is maybe yes, but 
you will inevitably be compromised and eventually destroyed by it. That's what happens to Camille. Double Zeta clearly hasn't made up its mind yet, and Judo is in the middle of trying to answer this question. Taman offers a counterpoint. Uh, Taman's decision here at the end to send the Kapul off like a, a bomb and destroy all those mobile suits is him saying that freedom is only possible if you can destroy all of those things and then live free of their influence. And that the way you do that is by avoiding notice and refusing those temptations. This is the same message that we got from Moon Moon as well, seeming to suggest that not only can you escape from the war, but you should, and there's nothing wrong with it. That's very different from First Gundam. Because when First Gundam portrayed neutrals who had managed to escape the war, it showed us side six. It showed us people exploiting the war for their own benefit, and in a tenuous situation where it seemed like at any moment they could lose their neutrality and be destroyed. I mean, in some ways, uh, Taman is our brief glimpse of a side six-like existence, right? Because he is willing to play both sides. He has no compunction about that. And although uh, Judo takes issue with it, the show itself portrays this as very understandable in the circumstances. In the same way that Taman understands why Judo would want to bail off the Argama, we can understand the decisions that Taman has made here. Right, and why why Taman has no particular interest in helping or hurting one side versus the other. Taman complicates what we saw from Moon Moon because, like you said, Moon Moon portrays a community in hiding and says that that is fine. And in fact, better than fine, it's good. They should hide and they should avoid the war. Uh, because while they weren't hiding before, it's hard to imagine what what significance Taman's community has beyond control of territory, right? They don't mention any mines or anything like that. You know, they live in a fishing village. They probably supplied fish to other villages in the area. They maybe even supplied fish to the nearby city. They were already pretty far under the radar as things go, and it still touched their lives. They couldn't escape the war even... Like, like, you have to be actively hiding to escape the war, and sometimes not even then can you manage it. But now that the Xeon garrison here has been wiped out, what happens to this community? Well, does anybody ever come looking for those guys? And can the villagers convincingly say that, oh, Ayug did that? <laughs> yep, that darn Ayug. Who even knows what they stand for? Although, speaking of Ayug... Judo's line there, what sort of soldiers would use civilians to do their dirty work? Do you think he knows? Do you think he's saying that with self-awareness? No, definitely not. Judo, you are the civilians in that sentence. He doesn't consider himself a civilian anymore. He might not admit it to Bright, but in a subtle way, this shows us that Judo now considers himself a soldier. Yeah, those early days of Judo floating through the hangar screaming, I'm not a soldier, are over. Speaking of that, there's the moment when uh, Judo is declaring that the only ones he's interested in fighting are the professional soldiers. He doesn't mean the civilians any harm. He's not interested in fighting them. And Pudu reiterates that uh, to anyone who can hear. And this episode really summed up for me how malleable Pudu is how much a product of her like immediate influences she is at any given time. Because 
She had no particular compunction about endangering and killing civilians when she did it on Axis. But under Judo's influence, she is perfectly content to, as, as most kids do, like parrot the views of someone who is important to her and who she likes and admires. Puru is just so tremendously receptive. They show that to us in this episode. She's incredibly sensitive. She has that highly advanced new type ability of like finding the person you're looking for, even over remarkable distances. So maybe there's a certain amount of just like psychological osmosis for her. I know kids do that anyway. People do that anyway. But maybe for Puru, it's more powerful because she is actually reading the minds of these people that she is in uh, affinity with, like Judo. We also see that she doesn't particularly want to escape. She doesn't try to get back to Axis. She doesn't try to go to Dakar. Uh, She wants to be with Judo. And while she's not a a good soldier, (laughs) and then she takes off by herself, uh, she also is not trying to undermine them or, or harm them in any way. Yeah, whatever loyalty she had to Axis was purely like conditioning or personal loyalty to Glemmy or the fact that it just happened to be where she was. They had control over her person. (laughs) I think that was about it. I also noted that it seemed for both uh, Judo and Puru that their ability to project themselves was diminished underwater. Hmm. Because both of them call out to these other mobile suits in the underwater fight And it doesn't seem as effective as it would have in space. Even with Puru bringing her full self to bear, uh, Taman doesn't hear her exactly. He has a brief like, oh, what was that? And then he's immediately fine again. He doesn't hear Judo at all until Judo actually brings the double Zeta to touch the Kapool. Are you suggesting that perhaps water interferes with new type power? Yes. It implies that there are physics involved (laughs) in their new type communications. Uh, And it's not just, woo, magic. (laughs) Because, of course, the way waves move through water versus the way waves move through a vacuum is different. (laughs) Or particles or whatever. Beyond the new type stuff, this episode really highlights for us something that felt significant in the previous episode when Bright was trying to convince Bichan Mondo to care about the Earth. But the growing difference between humans who live on Earth and humans who live in space. Taman comments on how weak Bicha is. Uh, When Taman punches Judo, we were talking about this. There is absolutely a spot um, in your middle where if you get punched, it sort of paralyzes you and you drop like that. I don't know that it would necessarily knock him out in the way that it does, but it's not unreasonable to say that this young fisherman... (laughs) who is used to earth gravity and hard labor, uh, is strong enough to hit Judo hard enough, especially if Judo is not expecting it, to knock him down like that. They're not used to the weather. Taman and his neighbors are frequently commenting on, oh, the waves freak them out, the wind freaks them out, the rain freaks them out. Like, they just don't know how to cope with the vagaries of earth weather. And there's also a growing divide between the spacenoids who moved back to Earth, who still think of themselves as spacenoids, but have been on Earth for years, versus the ones out in space. Because when that Xeon officer makes the comment about who would trust an aquatic mobile suit developed 
by people who have never seen the ocean. He's clearly drawing a distinction between him and his troops who live on Earth and are intimately familiar with the oceans versus those other spacenoids who don't know what it's like, which really creates the idea of a post-one-year war Xeon diaspora. There are probably tons of Xeon remnants either still holding the faith or quietly going about their lives and hoping nobody ever asks what they were doing during the war in practically every part of the Earth sphere. And at the same time that we see all of these physical and experiential differences between space noids and earth noids, we also get uh, the fact that the space noids are in awe of the beauty of the Earth, that they are impressed by it. And one final moment that made me laugh that I actually somehow completely missed the first time that it happened. But uh, the first time that the Argama comes under attack, Judo goes to sort of leap over the the ledge like he would normally do. And Eno grabs him and stops him and says, we're in gravity. <laughs> uh, because normally he would leap over the edge and sort of like float over to his mobile suit. Um, you know, just stopped him from a pretty nasty, possibly deadly fall. Yeah, that would have been unfortunate. Although, uh, this is very subtle and very quick, but if you watch closely, it looks like there's a little bit of uh, testicle-based slapstick here. Because when Eno grabs Judo and, like, pulls him back, uh, he does sort of whack his crotch onto the railing. And there's a brief moment of Judo, like, oh. Making the face. Making the face. Yeah, the first time I saw that scene, I thought Eno was just stopping him from launching without orders. And then I watched it again. I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> Judo, you dummy. But also, who wouldn't make that mistake after, you know, living their entire life in space? I have a favorite mobile suit of Double Zeta. It's hard to imagine how anything will top the Kapool. The Kapool. It's orb. It's a really neat shape. I don't know if you noticed this, but they seem to make it move like a sea creature. Yes, when it jumps and like does flips. Yeah, the way it does flips, the way it skims the top of the water, sort of dolphin-like, I mm. suppose. Um, or like a, um, a manta ray, although not shaped anything like a manta ray. No, and uh, manta ray <laughs> do flip, but not quite so gracefully. <laughs> the arms are of the sort of like... They almost look like gooseneck, like squiggly. <laughs> We're both doing the arm motions right now. Yeah. I like it. It's great. Why are aquatic mobile suits always so great? Ugh, it's really good. They also have Judo do something very clever in the underwater fight, which is that he uses the like boiling created by using his beam saber underwater to mask where he is. They use the exact same bit of animation for that twice over <laughs> in the same episode. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit egregious. Yeah, but it was really cool the first time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the scene's so good, they used it twice. I love the way the Kapool's chest like opens up and it's just a bunch of missiles. It goes from being a friendly orb to an angry orb so quickly. I assume it's Kapool-like capsule because its shape is like... Uh, the capsules you get from capsule machines. Oh. But that's pure conjecture. And 
now part two of Nina's research on childhood. This week, childhood in Japan. Last week, I gave an overview of some of the ways the concept of a child and childhood have been defined across time and different parts of the world. But I deliberately left out Japan, both to give myself a little more time for deep, targeted research and to have the information fresh in our minds when Tom and I go into the last part of this piece, namely to discuss the idea of childhood and of children as expressed in the Mobile Suit Gundam franchise thus far. To begin, I'd like to jump back to the Heian period, which ran 794 to 1185 CE. Conceptions of child and childhood were highly variable across region, occupation, and economic standing. And it's worth remembering that while the idea of Japan existed, Japan as nation-state, with common interests, unity of language and culture, highly centralized government, and so on, didn't really solidify until the Meiji period, and even then was more of a propaganda tool than a reality. Still, there are some commonalities and trends. According to folk wisdom of the period, children under age 7 are, quote, among the gods, their spirits loosely bound to their bodies. This belief persisted in some form into at least the 1960s. One source, Sofue, discusses regional differences in various childhood ceremonies in rural Japan circa 1965, and says that during the first 20 to 30 days after a baby is born, quote, the baby's soul is believed not to be firmly implanted in the body, and the baby is therefore surrounded by many dangers. Sofu's paper doesn't discuss how far back these traditions go, and so they are difficult to place in the timeline, but there seems a clear relationship between this widely held belief in the 60s, the Heian era or even older sense of children as among the gods, and the historically high rates of infant and child mortality. A number of the practices Sofue describes involve presenting the child to household and local gods to ask for their protection, including the god of the local well or river to protect the child from drowning. During the Heian period, children's position as among the gods meant that they sometimes worked as spirit mediums or assisted in performing exorcisms, a practice that continued into the medieval period. Reading about childhood ceremonies brought me to Shichigo-san, or 753, a ceremony and rite of passage that has roots in the Heian-era imperial court, was adopted by the samurai, spread to commoners during the Meiji period, and is still in practice in a modified form today. It celebrates girls reaching ages 3 and 7, and boys reaching age 5, and in some places, boys also celebrate at 3. Again, we return to the idea of children's spirits being only loosely attached to this plane of existence, and the ceremony celebrates their health and survival past the most dangerous ages. The samurai, as a class with special legal status, spanned some 600-odd years, across both the medieval period and the early modern period. Many sources did not specify exact date ranges for samurai practices, much to my frustration, but they still speak to childhood within a class of people who kept a lot of records, so there's a great deal of information to be gleaned about their childhoods and child-rearing. The samurai-era Shichigo-san was tied to certain benchmarks in how children were groomed and dressed. Children under age 3 were supposed to have their heads shaved, and after age 3, they could begin to grow their hair long. At age 5, boys wore their first hakama, a special kind of pleated pants worn with kimono. And girls switched from a simple cord to tie their kimono to an obi, or broad and more complicated to tie, sash. Puberty rites of passage were of particular importance among the samurai class, 
though they typically date from much earlier periods. Gempuku, or Gembuku, sometimes translated as dressing the forelock, was a ceremony modeled on Tang Chinese customs and dates back to the Nara period, 710 to 794 CE. The precise age at which it was done varied from as young as 10 to as old as 20, but it marked the transition from childhood to adulthood for men and women and involved changes in hairstyle, clothing, the adoption of a new adult name, and the assumption of adult roles and responsibilities. During the Heian period, children were not officially recognized as having a gender prior to their genpuku, and the clothing they wore was also not gendered. For Heian-era boys, becoming an adult meant new robes, new hairstyle, a special cap, and the assumption of a position at court. For samurai boys, it meant receiving their first helmet, armor, and proper sword. Up until that point, they would have carried only the short sword. For girls in both eras, it meant eligibility for marriage. And for daughters of samurai families, sometimes it was marriage itself that made her an adult, an event accompanied by a ceremonial shortening of her kimono sleeves. While the decision of when to conduct the ceremony for Heian-era parents typically involved money and connections, the ability to pay for the ceremony and the connections necessary to secure a good patron for the ceremony itself, for samurai parents, it more often had to do with the current level of unrest. As an adult, their son would be expected to fight in open combat, and so the greater the likelihood of violence, the longer they would wait, giving their son more time to finish growing, training, and getting strong. If there was little likelihood of fighting, they might have the ceremony earlier, since it allowed them to connect their son as a retainer to a higher-ranking samurai. As the country became more peaceful, the age also dropped so that sons could marry younger and have more time to produce an heir. For samurai households, the maintenance of their privileged position and the continuation of the family line were of the utmost importance. These goals shaped how parents related to their children, the process of child-rearing, and the social construct of childhood within their class. Roberts's research focuses on the Yamauchi clan of the Tosa domain and their surviving records, such as diaries and memoirs, from the mid-1700s to the mid-1800s, pretty much the last century of the Edo period and the end of samurai in Japan. As a more peaceful period and one in which trade was becoming more important and merchants wealthier, there was considerable class anxiety among the samurai. They felt their position in society was eroding. Markers of adulthood shifted younger, often because parents wanted their child to have an established place in society before some further social change made it even more difficult or precarious. Prior to widely available contraception, even wealthy families had to contend with the possibility of having too many children to effectively care for. Abortion, infanticide, and abandonment were more common than they are now, and some samurai families used these strategies to limit the number of children they had, particularly once they had two sons, an heir and a spare, as they say. In fact, it was common enough, and contentious enough, for the domain lord of Tosa to ban the practice in 1759. Another strategy for times of economic hardship was for older children to be sold into indentured servitude or adopted out of the family. Variations in how families dealt with having too many children to care for depended on differences in religion and philosophical beliefs. For many families, abortion and infanticide were not seen as immoral acts. Despite the practical significance of boy children as heirs, girls were not unimportant. After all, in the event of there being no heir, a daughter's husband was usually adopted to continue the family. As babies, boys and girls were treated very similarly, 
with no major differences in the opulence of, say, their naming ceremony. In the diaries of Mori Hirosada, a samurai of the Tosa region, the various significant events of his children's lives, their first smile, first solid food, illnesses, accidents, festivals, are recorded in similar detail regardless of gender. Gendering of clothing, activities, and schooling became pronounced around age two. Families went to great lengths to care for sick children, hiring doctors, having relatives come to help, petitioning the gods, and even going on pilgrimages. And when a child recovered, the same community that had been called on for help and prayers was part of the celebrations. Again, these lavish expressions were not limited to heirs or even to boy children. Where gradations in the level of interest and care occur, they seem to come down to birth order or family finances. A combination of legal codes, mourning regulations, and public documents show a shift in Japanese attitudes and customs around the deaths of children between the medieval and early modern periods. In the medieval period, children who died were put into sacks and left in the woods or on mountainsides. By the early modern period, children who died were being given quote-unquote proper burials. Yet there was also conflict between the advice in the written record and what families actually did. Anne Walthall looks at expressions of emotion toward children in the records of one particular household in the early modern period and finds that parents were warned against extensive mourning, but that this family acted against advice, with ceremonial remembrances for a daughter's death day for seven years after she died. This change in the treatment of children's bodies when they died was part of a broader social change in how children were viewed. Walthall notes, medieval children had been left to grow up on their own, Early modern children came to be seen as treasures, to be carefully raised and educated. The medieval period also involved an idea of child that was more fluid and complex, even more divorced from biological age, and primarily dependent on social, occupational, and religious factors. To the extent that some people who we would absolutely call adults never went through the rite of passage that marked them as such, for reasons of their position within a Buddhist temple, they kept the hair, clothing, and relative social position of a child indefinitely. Children were also not people. Humans were classified into categories that broke down into people, children, priests, and outcasts, with all of the groups that were not people characterized by a closeness to gods, demons, and magic. Several groups of outcasts retained certain child characteristics regardless of age, such as continued use of their childhood name. Children and youths were associated with chaos and violence, while adulthood was associated with social order. The attitude toward children was not dissimilar to one of the European modes I mentioned last week, that children were inherently bad or even evil and in need of education to make them good. Some children were raised in monasteries as acolytes or disciples, and temples were the primary source of children's education in the medieval period. The educational options of the upper classes expanded in the early modern period, but temples remained the primary source of education for commoners, villagers, and townspeople until the Meiji period introduced government-controlled, mandatory education. Boys were sometimes sent to live in monasteries until their genbuku, at which point they could either return home to their families or take the tonsure and become monks. Instructional texts for children contrast ideal behavior with exaggerated and even humorous descriptions of bad behavior. And there was a preference for obedience, humility, quiet, and tameness, discouraging any behavior that would disrupt the decorum and activity of the monastery. Monks would use scare tactics to discourage unwanted behavior. 
Due to the environment, these were often religious in nature. Karmic punishments and rewards for behavior, the possibility of hell as a punishment for the truly bad child, and the added layer that a bad child would damn their caretaker to hell as well, since it reflected a failure of teaching. This forms a stark contrast with the characteristics later samurai families sought to instill in their sons. While they were supposed to cultivate cooperation, physical and mental toughness, and the denial of self-interest in order to better perform their duties, it was also essential that they demonstrated a lack of fear and a readiness to use violence tempered by self-restraint. Essential, since actual violence was often punished by local authorities. The Hagakure, a collection of commentaries by Yamamoto Tsunetomo, a retainer of daimyo Nabeshima Mitsushige, specifically warns against scaring children. It contains a section of child-rearing advice that says in part, From the time of infancy, one should encourage bravery and avoid trivially frightening or teasing the child. If a person is affected by cowardice as a child, it remains a lifetime scar. It is a mistake for parents to thoughtlessly make their children dread lightning, or to have them not go into dark places, or to tell them frightening things in order to stop them from crying. Furthermore, a child will become timid if he is scolded severely. Ultimately, the family goal was to raise tough, skilled warriors who also understood how to navigate the social codes and heavily stratified society they lived in. As Japan entered a long period of peace, Samurai also felt a need to justify their position in society through unimpeachable conduct and moral and behavioral superiority. Boys learned essential skills for adulthood, not purely through education and martial arts training, but also through play and unsupervised social activity. I want to expand on two specific examples, both because I find them fascinating and because they demonstrate a construction of childhood as preparation for adulthood. The first example is that in addition to attending school and training in groups, boys also frequently roamed around unsupervised and formed gangs. These gangs were not simply about friendship, but as one source put it, boys, quote, learned about modes of aggression, competitive manliness, obedience to hierarchies, and group unity. Rival gangs would get into scuffles and even arrange contests between each other, but would usually keep things from reaching a point that would get them and their families in trouble with local authorities. In effect, practicing that balance between the willingness to use violence and self-restraint. The second example has to do with romantic and sexual relationships, which were common between boys in their early and late teens. In his diaries, Mori Hirosada writes of his 16-year-old son, Hirotake. He has become infatuated with Watanabe Yakuma's son and heir, Kichitaro. Hirotake waits at home with a group of friends while two other friends, representing him, go to Kichitaro's father, Yakuma, to declare Hirotake's love. In turn, Yakuma tells them that he has no objection, but thinks his son may already be involved with someone else, so he will have to talk to his son and respond later. It turned out that he was right, and since Kichitaro and his lover were not interested in parting ways, Hirotake was forced to give up his infatuation. There were times when these confrontations did not end so peacefully and required mediators, to come to not only a peaceful resolution, but one in which the honor of the individual youths involved, as well as their families, was satisfied. Parental permission was sought for these relationships, partly to reinforce that personal relationships could have an impact on the family as a whole, but also to reinforce monogamy and try to head off conflicts between rival suitors, the sort of conflicts that could lead to violence and get their families into trouble. I know I've mentioned legal trouble several times, the greatest risk was that your family would be stripped of their samurai rank, 
a not uncommon punishment. One paper contrasted Japan's early modern view of children with the trend we mentioned last week that as children become less economically useful, they become more emotionally priceless. As they worked less in and out of the household, they gained emotional value. In the view of this paper, children in Japan seemed to gain significant emotional value while still making numerous contributions to the management of the household. It was, in fact, expected and considered an important aspect of their education and moral development, even for children of the very highest social classes and families of the greatest wealth. Families may have had different means and methods, but the overarching aim of child rearing at this time seems consistent to raise children who would be of use to the family and the society. However, the relationship was not purely utilitarian. Chinese philosophy, and Confucianism in particular, was of great significance in Japan at this time, and efforts were made to teach children filial piety and classical virtues. However, some scholars and intellectuals of the time made a distinction between what they saw as the, quote, suspicious rationality of Chinese thought, where filial loyalty, devotion, and obedience arise out of the fact of the relationship itself, and, quote, Japanese values based on the spontaneity of human feeling, where those same filial feelings are a natural response to parental love and affection. The affective relationship was, in these circles, seen as essential, the building block on which all other education and parental influence was based. The Meiji era focused on children's role as future citizens and members of the state. As in the West, this period saw increasing government involvement in the lives of families and children, and the Meiji era government used education as a way to form good citizens, instilling children with patriotism, ethics, and respect for the social order. This was when elementary school, the first six years of schooling, became mandatory for boys and girls. A new marker of adulthood emerged in that when they turned 20, all men became eligible for conscription. Age on its own, especially within the context of the school, became the rank signifier between children, rather than other coming-of-age markers of previous eras. We see greater provision being made to support poor and abandoned children, laws regarding child abuse, and some of the first legislation around child labor. Early debates about children's rights at this time included the need to, as Ueki Emori put it, consider children as individuals, not just an entity that benefits their parents. And children were characterized as vulnerable, innocent, and in need of adult influence. The Meiji period saw more cultural forums created with children as the intended audience, such as children's magazines, and the beginnings of what we now call the childcare industry, the emergence of pediatric and childcare specialists, tons of advice about rearing children in books and magazines, and the idea that parents, and particularly mothers, should, quote, leave nothing to chance in the formation of their children. Frustuk writes that although clearly separate and distinct from adulthood, childhood in the Meiji period did not have a broadly, nationally applicable definition in terms of its length, characteristics, or rights and responsibilities. Children were, quote, lovable and horrible, vulnerable and demonic, valuable and burdensome, worthy of rights and yet lacking in agency, weak and yet a threat to the social order. The only consistent thread was the broad understanding of children as people who should be educated, conquered, and seduced in order to bring them from a place of weakness to one of strength, all in service to nation and empire. During the Taisho period, 1912 to 1926, there was heightened interest in the child, 
and many more public conversations about the nature of childhood. These conversations led to, quote, valorization of childhood as a distinct time in life to be marked off for celebration and preservation. The social construct of child was a romantic vision that posited the innocence of the child as the embodiment of a precious, originary state and was increasingly defined by an exclusionary aesthetic that celebrated middle-class childhood and muted markers of socioeconomic status. Children were pure and unblemished, to be cherished and celebrated for their qualities as children. Children's perspectives were deemed to have inherent value, precisely because they were different from adults. The Taisho period saw the emergence of priorities that continue to this day, such as the importance of family involvement in education, with its likely roots in that Meiji-era advice to not leave anything up to chance, and continuing into the kyoiku mama or education mama stereotype of today. One of the only sources I found that contained direct expressions from children was about poetry from the 1930s, specifically that written by working-class children, so a perspective we don't get much of in the historical record. These children's thoughts and feelings form a contradiction to the idea of the romanticized innocence of the child in popular discourse. The poems describe children's concerns and the realities of their day-to-day life, including their thoughts and feelings about labor, how weather will affect the family farm, the fact that they haven't been able to sell fish all day and will get yelled at when they get home, being told to work silently while they make sandals, but also positive feelings of aspiration and pride associated with their work. Other common topics are observations of adults, especially family, and an awareness of the economic hardships and stresses those adults face. Though lacking in experience, children were very aware. They saw and understood that there were power dynamics at play. This was especially true in the contrast between parents, and especially fathers, as powerful authorities in the household, and yet powerless in the face of landlords, tax collectors, or a bad harvest. To quote the research, In contrast to the popular conception of labor as onerous and oppressive to children, many children of poorer families express pride in their work and their ability to take part in the shared family endeavor of making ends meet. From the end of the Taisho period through World War II, we begin to see propaganda professionals, educators, writers, artists, engaged in convincing children to see themselves as soldiers or wombs of the empire not just to secure children's future participation when they become adults, but out of a perception of children as chief manipulators of adult emotions. Children see themselves as brave soldiers, heroes creating peace and order, and parents see soldiers as children in need of care and protection. During this period, children were characterized as politically innocent, morally pure, and endowed with authentic feelings. At the same time, all Japanese people were children with the emperor's father to the national family, what one source calls the obliteration of childhood through universality. Wartime mobilization demanded an end to infantilization of children, and instead treating them as little nationals, who would, of course, labor in the war effort. The wartime mode rejected the idea of children as precious, rendered consumer products for children wasteful, and demanded that even recreation serve productive purpose. From this point on, we see children frequently used as an abstraction, with children in wartime propaganda used to disguise, obscure, or diminish the horrors of war. War becomes like children playing soldiers. Soldiers, pictured with Chinese children and other children from colonized places, 
are painted as kind saviors rather than brutal conquerors. Depictions of children were knowingly used to create warm, familial feelings in adults. There is extant writing by children at this time that conveys their feelings about the war, which were considerably more complicated than propaganda would suggest. While some were eager to join the war effort, others expressed deep disappointment that their future plans had been derailed, and some also expressed anti-war sentiments to their friends. Some teens led labor actions during the war effort, organizing strikes, sabotage, and walk-offs from their factories, particularly if rations were insufficient. On the opposite side of the coin, patriotic teens often encouraged each other to work especially hard, despite difficult conditions, with a fervor exceeding that of the adults around them. Childhood during the war frequently involved separation from family, as young children were sent to the relative safety of the country, and teens were mobilized as factory workers, sent to live in on-site dormitories far from home. Once the war had ended, children became symbols of victimhood, suffering, and a need for peace. In a complete reversal from earlier efforts to make children think of themselves as future soldiers, the new goal was to make children pacifists by preserving their natural inclination toward peace. Some of the same associations in pictures and stories were made between children and soldiers, but this time between Japanese children and occupation soldiers. Children were even seen as potential educators, cultural ambassadors teaching the occupation forces about Japanese customs through casual interactions. And again, using children as manipulators of adult feelings, but this time to encourage warm feelings and kindness on the part of occupying soldiers. The portrayal of children as vulnerable and in need of defense has been used in the post-war period to justify remilitarization. There is frequent use of images of children and children's media in promotional materials for the contemporary self-defense force. And one source posited that associations between children and peace render peace itself naive, an unrealistic, childish dream. Last episode, I discussed the observed trends of a lengthened childhood and of childhood as a period of economic dependence, consumption, and study in Europe and the United States. Endo describes the same process occurring in Japan, but over a much shorter time frame. Rather than spanning a little over a century, in the Japanese context, Endo describes it as a contemporary trend, begun mostly in the 1970s and continuing to the present. Children's lives since the 1970s have become more closely controlled, with more homework and cram school, less housework, and less free play without adult supervision or involvement. There is more concern over children's safety, and more worry, more constant attention devoted to their studies. University acceptance is determined by a single exam grade, and what university a young person attends is widely portrayed as determinant of adult success and comfort, resulting in intense academic pressure. As I switch gears to talk about how Tomino portrays children and adults, there are two outside points I want to raise. The first is a quote from a show I watched recently called Dark. It's a German TV show on Netflix that I basically can't say anything about without spoiling, but one of the characters says, a human lives three lives. The first ends with the loss of naivete, the second with the loss of innocence, and the third with the loss of life itself. This is a sort of philosophical or experiential view of the transition from childhood to youth, youth to adulthood, that I think Tomino rejects. The second goes to a paper I read for this piece by Aaron Moore, where he examined how children viewed adults and adulthood in Japan during World War II. 
He makes the point that unlike other what are called violent hierarchies, characterized by power imbalance, for example, colonized and colonizer, that between adults and children is recognized as transient, with the ruled becoming the rulers over the course of a lifetime. Also that while adults' ability to construct the conceptual child passes with time as the subject ages, the former child's ability to construct the conceptual adult comes to define those adults' experience of old age. Which I bring up because Tomino doesn't just define children, he defines adults too, and most of his definitions are pretty damning. To start with, I don't think Tomino views children as naive. With the the bulk of the casts of the Gundam shows being children, we're seeing children have a broad range of what we might call adult experience. But are the main characters of the various Gundam series actually children? Because as you talked about, the transition from childhood to adulthood happens at different times under different circumstances throughout history, and it's not always linked to age. When these teenagers take over a battleship, when they become soldiers and pilots and start killing other people, can they still be children? But we don't even have to look at the protagonists. Look at the orphans. The orphans are absolutely children. You think he doesn't consider Kika Katzenlitz <laughs> or Shintenkum children? I suppose he must. And I think there is a qualitative distinction between the way the orphans are treated by the story and the way that the teenagers are treated by the story. I suppose what I'm, what I'm getting at is that I don't think Tomino sees the difference between the small children and the teens as being one of experience, necessarily. Although there is a sense that those smallest kids do have a unique perspective on events. I think we see that both with uh, Kika Cats and Let's in the first series and with Shinta and Kum in uh, Zeta and in Double Zeta. Absolutely. Children are unique, but they're not naive, and I'm, I'm not sure they would even be called innocent. It sort of depends on how we want to define innocent, I know. I definitely agree that they're not naive. Naivete and innocence, the way we usually conceive of them, is that they represent a uh, limitation on a person's understanding of the world, that there are things they don't see or don't understand because of their innocence. But another way to view innocence is actually as offering a more complete view, a more honest view of the world, because it's not clouded by preconceptions. I found myself thinking about you know, we see in the show children can be violent, children can kill. But for Tomino, loss of innocence is the sense of compromise we get from so many adults in the Gundam universe and from some of the teens. The, the compromises they are willing to make as they get older compared to the clarity that they experience as children. And with that loss of clarity comes a loss of agency. They end up losing their sense of direction and purpose, and they end up taking orders, joining groups, doing what is expected of them by other people. You know, you can see this in stark relief with Camille's story and how he becomes so much more biddable after he gets beaten into line. One of the things that most fascinates me about Tomino's conception of children is that it rejects the passivity of a lot of other conceptions of children. Children in these Gundam stories are powerful and capable in their own right. And I do think they are more perceptive 
than a lot of other people in the show. Think about all of the times when the orphan kids have noticed something and then been unable to convey it to the adults who are so wrapped up in whatever they've got going on that they haven't noticed these important things happening. The reality of these kids' lives is also contrasted at a couple of points with the idea of a protected, innocent childhood, which in general in Gundam is portrayed as an impossibility. That the idea of a protected, innocent childhood is is not real. It's a dream. We'll go back to the very, very first episode of First Gundam and Temre talking about how the Gundam will make it so that kids like his own son won't have to fight in the war. When in fact, within that very same episode, it's exactly the opposite. That desire to protect your children from the world is shown to be impossible within the first 20 minutes of Gundam. And as, as we pointed out at several points, like children are aware. Children notice and feel what's going on. As long as the world has war in it, there's no way to protect children from the war. It will touch them. And so the, the only truly protected, innocent childhood occurs in a protected, innocent world. It's hard to pin down a consistent message from Tomino on this point, unfortunately. And I think a lot of the reason for that is that his philosophies do change over time. Yeah, we see a lot of conflict, I think, especially in how he contends with the the paradigm of being of use to the family and community, because he doesn't reject it outright. We see multiple characters, you know, Frabo, Fa, who feel intense pride and value in being of use. We see that for Kika Cats and Let's, we see it for Shintan Kum. But our main characters more often need to feel of use to themselves. They need to feel like independent actors. And the, the pressure of the community on them to make themselves of use is clearly portrayed as a negative. It's experienced by the characters as a negative, but I wonder if it really is meant to be that way for the audience. And what I think about here is something that's been coming up in Double Zeta for the last couple of episodes, which is Judo's personal desires to go save his sister being contrasted with his collective obligations to the spaceship. And this also came up with Bicha and Mondo when they were talking about leaving once they got to Earth and Bright saying, sure, whatever, but you have to fight with us until then, is that the spaceship creates a sort of obligatory collective because you are all in it together. If something bad happens to the spaceship, it doesn't matter if you didn't want to be there. And I don't think that this is portrayed in a negative way, this collective obligation to the community of the ship. Over and over again, it's what drives Judo to ultimately do the right thing to protect his friends and to continually put off his desire to throw it all away and go rescue Lena. I come back to that poetry written by working class kids in the 1930s and the fact that uh, kids are aware of precarious situations around them. Those kids gain satisfaction in being part of the sort of communal activity of keeping everything going, of making ends meet, of surviving. And that at least some of the time in Tomino's work, it's better for children to be part of the situation and to be actors than to have them relegated to the sidelines to look on while they are affected by a situation they are 
not allowed to try to control or mitigate. And for that, just look back to Jaburo. When Kika Katzenletz had the opportunity to stay safe in the playrooms of the residential sector of the Jaburo base, but instead they opted for danger and labor and to be part of their found family. Yeah, if, if non-participation does not make kids safe. And even if we accept safety as a good in and of itself, what is the price of safety? Next time on episode 3.23, Duel in the Desert, Part 2. We cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, episode 25, and... Rommel. Really? Yeah, you know, the Axis general fighting in the desert. Holdouts. Where'd this lampshade come from? The Desert Fox. The one problem with Pudu. Beach's Miami Vice outfit. Antlion. Is this teamwork? A word that can also mean pointless. And two vast and trunkless legs of steel stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered dowage lies. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at GundamPodcast, on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email, at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or, why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting... Forget about release order or chronological. The only correct way to experience Gundam is in alphabetical order. Starting, of course, with my fanfic, Mobile Suit Gundam Aardvark's Lament. Or in Japanese, Kido Senshi Gundamu Adovaku no Aishoka. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. And thank you for listening. Are you ready? I am. Including a new amphibious mobile suit. Did I say amphibious? Kido Senshi Gandamu Adovaku no Aishoku. 
No, I shock. No, I shoka. 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 I shoka. An aqueous mobile. Well, yes. And I suppose. <clears throat> and I suppose. I wonder if. And I. Hmm. <laughs> It's tricky. How you doing? Good. Um, it's a little hard to talk about for whatever reason. Yeah, it is. I think um, I don't know. I feel like we got very different things out of the episode. Maybe mm-hmm. that's why. Maybe. I can't remember if the show has yet used the term, but I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to tell you that. They have not said that yet, but I just worked that out for myself. <laughs> Anything else you want to talk about? The kapool. The kapooru. You said you had a comment here. Did I write that in? Yes, you said Tom has comments. What did I want to say? Uh, come back to me. All right. Yes. Well, for the record, Zabibi is magenta. He's about three and a half feet tall, no tentacles, but five ears, and his eyes sparkle with a sort of waggish, irrepressible curiosity and wit. And frankly, I think all of that is quite evident in my performance. But as ever, genius is not recognized in its own time. And we'll start hallucinating. And the last time that happened, Nathan ate our entire supply of dehydrated dairy desserts because, and I quote, the lactose made him feel at one with the universe. Murmur, 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 murmur. Free marketplace of ideas. Murmur, 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 murmur. All beef diet. Murmur, 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 murmur. Okay, let's see if I can do this one. It's a bit shorter, so I might be able to manage it. Okay. Hang on. What do I feel about this?